This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. The Scots Afrikaners, Identity, Politics, and Intertwined Religious Cultures in Southern and Central Africa, written by Retief Mueller and published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021, explores the complex relationship between religion, nationalism, and ethnicity by taking a close look at the Dutch Reformed Church history in South Africa and the Scottish Afrikaner entanglements and tensions which had created an intermeshed historical narrative of two diverse cultures. Working with new sources, this groundbreaking book presents this transgenerational narrative of the influence and role played by diasporic Scots and their descendants in the religious and political lives of the Dutch Afrikaner people in British colonial Southern Africa. Retief demonstrates how the Scottish religious culture helped to develop a complicated counter-narrative to what would become the mainstream discourse of Afrikaner Christian nationalism in the early 20th century. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this very important work, how this book guides the readers in better understanding the academic discourse on the historical relationship between mission, empire, and colonialism, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this very book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today, we are privileged uh, to talk with Retief Mueller, the author of The Scots Afrikaners, Identity Politics, and Intertwined Religious Cultures in Southern and Central Africa. Retief Mueller is the director of the Nagel Institute for the Study of World Christianity at Calvin University. Prior to going to Calvin in 2019, he was the Associate Professor of Church History at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. He has also taught for several years in South Korea, including as Assistant Professor of Christian Studies at Kaemyeong University in the city of Daegu from 2009 to 2011. Retief's research focuses on the connections between nationalism, religion, and history of the Protestant missionary movement and indigenous movements in world Christianity. Retief has written on various aspects of Christianity in Southern and Central Africa, including his first monograph, African Pilgrimage, Ritual Travel in South Africa's Christianity of Zion, published in 2011, um, which describes a South Africa that is made of a number of different fragmented worlds and which closely examines the Zion Christian Church, one of the largest religious movements in Southern Africa, and a good example of indigenized African Christianity. 
and to highlight just a few of his recent publications, Retief has written The Non-Translatability of the Holy Trinity, published in the Journal of HTS Theological Studies in 2019, The Dutch Reformed Church, Mission Enthusiasts, and Push and Pull of Empire, published in the Journal of Studia Historia Ecclesiastica in 2019, War, Aesthetic Pilgrimage and Mission, South Africa's Dutch Reformed Church in the Early 20th Century, published in the Journal of the Studies in World Christianity in 2018, and Evangelical Nationalism in Apartheid, South Africa, Bearers Nadia Reconsidered, published in the Journal of Church and State in 2017. Retief is also ordained in the Dutch Reformed Church of South Africa and has served as a pastor at congregations in South, Af South Korea and South Africa. So welcome, Dr. Mueller, uh, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you very much um, for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thank you very much, Pyongho. I really appreciate being here, and thank you. Thank you. Um, as we begin, I would like to first say um, my sincere congratulations, Dr. Mueller. This very book that we are discussing today just came out um, last month as today is December 1st. And this is the ninth book on the Scottish Religious Culture series. If I'm not mistaken, I also believe that this is your second monograph. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yes. Um, once again, congratulations on this new book. And I think it will be great to start a conversation today by getting to know you a little more. Um, could you share with us about your background, such as where you grew up, where you did your PhD, and how you came interested in your field of study? And please do feel free to mention any influential interlocutors that you might have had along the way. Uh, thank you uh, for that. Let me... Yes, let me say um, I'm from, as you mentioned, I'm from South Africa. I was born in, and raised in the northern part of South Africa, central northern part, really, um, and uh, grew up in the, what was then named the city of Pretoria. Nowadays, it's Twane. Um, I grew up there, went to school, uh, went did my undergraduate studies at the University of Pretoria, and then I uh, went overseas. I, I came to the United States. Uh, I did a THM at Columbia Theological Seminary, which is in Atlanta. And then I briefly returned to South Africa for a, a, a one year. And then I, I came back to Princeton Theological Seminary for my PhD. And um, that took me on all kinds of um, interesting journeys along the way. I ended up, as you mentioned earlier, in South Korea as well. That was during a time when I was actually um, initially still working on my PhD. Um, and um, yeah, so, uh, you know, in brief, that's what I did. Then then I ended up back in South Africa for a period. And now I'm back in the United States. So I've been, uh, been here and there and everywhere. People who influenced me, a very important, um, you know, number of people across uh, the spectrum. Uh, some that, that I didn't even know very well personally, but people who, uh, who influenced me immensely in terms of their work, for example, Andrew Walls and Lamentane, Kwame Bediaku, those people, um, I, I did a part of my master's degree thesis on Kwame Bediaku as well, uh, and also on Mercy Amba, Odeyoye, and Alan Buzak, so three different uh, African scholars. And then... Um, during my PhD years, I was also influenced by your own uh, 
the actual supervisor, Richard Young, who's a very important person in my own development. So uh, those are just some names and then many others along the way. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity um, to get to know you better, Dr. Mueller. And yes, indeed, those names are very familiar, especially for our listeners who are very interested in world Christianity. Um, now I'd like to uh, kind of invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this important monograph, uh, The Scots Afrikaners, Identity, Politics, and Intertwined Religious Cultures in South, Southern, Af- Southern and Central Africa. Um, my question is, where did this journey begin and how did this idea develop? And I'm sure that you have quite to say in regards to this, as in my close reading of your book, I remember that this project goes beyond just your academic interests, but it also closely relates to your personal life, right? Yes, and I think mm-hmm. that's very perceptive uh, of you to pick up on those on those points, Pyongyang. I am, you know, yeah. First, definitely, there's a strong academic interest when I. Um, in my first book, which was focusing more on contemporary indigenous African Christianity in, in Southern Africa, I uh, afterwards immediately started to think, you know, I have to explore some of the tensions that's uh, familiar to many people and to myself that became more and more familiar through the writing of that uh, book uh, and look more historically at, at patterns involving things like race and especially the history of apartheid um, and the theology that that drove it within um, the, the Dutch Afrikaner portion of South African population, but which then had a, a massive impact on the, the wider culture and society as well, as you know. Um, so those, those interests, you know, then also started to link up in all kinds of interesting ways with my and my interest in the missionary movement, the worldwide Protestant missionary movement. Um, so um, there are and there were some some very interesting developments in terms of mission from South Africa to uh, other places in Africa within the Dutch Reformed Church specifically. I knew about this, and as you mentioned, there's a personal connection. I happen to know about this very well because some of my own ancestors were part of this this missionary movement, if you want to put it like that. And some of them feature as characters in this book. But, um, yeah, so because I happen to to know about this history a little, um, but not a lot, I, you know, had an interest to to dig deeper. And then I discovered, well, this actually links up with my own research interests in all kinds of interesting ways. And, uh, you know, just the one thing led to another. Uh, it, uh, it drew me deeper into the narrative. And actually what happened was when I received the, the invitation to do a post-doctoral, to, uh, yeah, to do postdoctoral study at Stellenbosch University early on in 2012, um, that's really when I started to focus on this quite specifically because I was situated in Stellenbosch and um, I had access to the Dutch Reformed Church archive, uh, which with the majority of the sources featuring here is from. Mm, of course. And thank you for sharing that. And if I may squeeze in one more question here, I'm curious to hear like your research process and how your writing experience was like as you draw, you mentioned the Dutch Reform Archive, but you also draw from, you know, Dutch and Afrikaans um, archival sources, even private collections. So how was your um, research process and, you know, writing experience like throughout this process? Yeah, no, yeah, thanks. You know, for me, it's uh, 
that experience is, I would typify it as sort of organic in the sense that, you know, it grows. And in my case, it grew from a, a wide interest that I didn't really know how things linked up. I didn't know there were connections between different things. And then it's a process of discovery. You know, you dig into, it's like, um, you, you know, I've, you can use different metaphors for this, but, uh, you know, the, the, the old image of the um, archaeologist who's digging into, into the soil and un- uncovers the skeleton of or whatever, um, it's somewhat like this. You, you uncover a, a, a portion here and then that leads to something. And then eventually a, a larger picture is revealed that you did not contemplate would exist. But uh, the Dutch Reformed Church archive is, is a very rich archive. And so even many of these private collections that you mentioned, the, the, you know, some of those sources had links to the Dutch Reformed Church archive. So some of the documents that I had in my own family collections, you know, passed on by uh, through the generations, really, were also there. So there's... Um, and then some of the people connected to that archive were also people interested in similar kinds of um, of, of research and history. So uh, there's a network of people that helped me along the way. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for that answer. And um, as I've done many interviews on this network of um, introducing new books, one of the um, repeated answers I get is the networks, the connections, and and the relationships that are formed in the process of yeah. of of um, writing these books. So thank you for sharing uh, with us uh, your answer. Um, as we begin uh, to open the beginning pages of your book, um, I can see that it is comprised of eight chapters, um, which in- includes both the introduction and the conclusion. And if I may highlight here as well, um, I really enjoyed the bibliography as well. Um, there's a rich uh, um, collection of resources that you also draw from. And also for those that are interested um, in this um, in this research, um, there's a whole list of bibliography that they can revisit too. So providing that was um, was wonderful, and I really enjoyed looking over them as well. And your book takes us on this journey um, and looking closely at the mid nineteenth and to mid twentieth century in South Africa. Um, it is the beginning chapter of your book that you are very revealing about what you want to accomplish here, announcing that the aim of your book is to provide a narrative of Scots' influence on the Dutch Afrikaner people of South Africa, and particularly in the Dutch Reformed Church, the DRC, uh, and its missionary movement. Um, but before embarking on this very exciting journey with um, with you, we, you begin by doing a very crucial task, and that is you lay out the groundwork of your book by providing some much-needed historical context, by actively drawing from the work of uh, John McKenzie. Um, I think the book was titled "The Scots in South Africa," um, and you help this, and you do this by you know helping the readers, such as myself, to understand what had been going on before we begin to look at the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, And I remember how you begin by retracing the arrival of the Dutch Reformed Church. And again, I'll refer to them as the DRC throughout our interview. Um, In the middle of the 17th century with the Dutch East India Company. And early on, we see these new identities uh, forming. um, Identities such as the Freeburgers, uh, Trekboer, or Boers. 
uh, things became even more complex with the arrival and the annexation of South Africa, then known as um, also Cape Colony uh, by Britain in the early 19th century. And we see this tension be- brewing you know, between the British settlers and the existing inhabitants. Um, and it was also here we see a small number of Scots uh, minority, yet having a, a gargantuan influence uh, with their intellectual um, and also uh, influence and as, as bridge builders between the English and the Dutch. And we'll talk about this more as we proceed into the uh, book. But now just from the introduction itself, we as readers understand that you'll be taking a historical approach and unraveling your work. And as someone still learning about the um, context of South Africa, I realize how the issues of identity and the role that religion, specifically Christianity, uh, through the DRC and the Scott missionaries, played in South Africa was indeed very significant, and how crucial this chapter is, and as it can be portrayed as a as a key in, in unlocking the contents of your book. So I was wondering, Dr. Mueller, if you could highlight some you know key elements that you also think will be helpful before we dive deeper into your book, and do please feel free to address other things as well. But um, something that really stood out to me were um, in terms of identity, this new dynamic that the Scots brought into the mix and the implications of the British imperial policy of Anglo-Caucasian. Um, so, Dr. Mueller, would you like to provide your answer? Yeah, no, thank you, Biongo. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, that, that that first chapter potentially could be a, a lot longer than it ended up being. Um, you know, and, and people have written books about that, that period in the history. But, you know, basically what you have is the Dutch or the Netherlands as a country did not colonize South Africa in, in, a, in any specific way. Uh, what you had was more a case of the, the, the East India, Dutch East India Company had a trading post there. And, um, and they, this post needed... Uh, to be supplied by agricultural products and so forth for these ships that went around the Cape, uh, Southern Cape, which when I mentioned the Cape, uh, this often referred to as as South Africa in a kind of similar way in that period. But really, this is the southwestern portion of what today would be um, South Africa. So these ships would go around there to the East Indies. So what was then referred to as the East Indies today would be uh, Indonesia primarily and places around it, but um, in in the course of time, there was now established this Dutch community. You could say, mainly of an agrarian community of people uh, who were landowners to an extent. Um, they were gi- given land by the, the company, which probably the, the, they didn't own the land as such, but, you know, how things happened in colonial times, they were just uh, granted access to land. And, and, of course, that led to all sorts of tensions with the indigenous population that were there already. And um, and that's that's really how things started in terms of the, this, uh, the, the racial um, tensions and, you know, whole history of injustice in Southern Africa and beyond with, with that colony. Um, now, the, some of the terms that you also mentioned, like free burgers and, and trek birds and so on, uh, free burgers means a free citizen. So that's what some of these Dutch who became sort of landowners there 
were a cult, uh, or if referred to themselves as that. And um, uh, in terms of the identities, then, as you mentioned, the very important aspect within the colonial society was when Britain became involved and um, essentially took over the Cape um, and made it into a British colony. Um, and that that had uh, the different implications. Um, the, the Dutch colonists who were there already were not often very pleased with this situation, mainly uh, or for, for different reasons, but one being the fact that there were now laws, uh, especially uh, um, the, the, the laws of abolition, uh, anti-slavery le- legislation that were being uh, put into place, etc. And and they were the original Dutch colonists were slave owners, and so um, you know this is as part of the tension within the colonial society. Then um, the arrival of the Scots is. Uh, is um, I think maybe we'll, we'll say a little bit more later about exactly how that happened. But as you say, there was a strong presence of Scots within the empire, even though they themselves were a smaller minority. And uh, within the Dutch Reformed Church, they became a strong presence. And um, and that led to, uh, to other factors, which is what this book is about, really. Of course. Thank you for that answer. And a kind of a brief follow-up on that is um, regarding this notion of hybridity. Um, You use this concept as kind of like the overarching frame of reference, especially as you heavily invest your awards on writing about the Scots. And I was wondering if you could briefly explain to us a little more on this concept and how you understand, how you utilize this concept of hybridity in untangling the complex issues of identity in South Africa during this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hybridity is um, sometimes a controversial term. So, so many people don't like like the word when you use it. Um, but it's it's a as I, I you know I've always felt and rediscovered in in my research for this book. It's it's a very useful term. Most often, it's used within the uh, the, the context of the, col- the colonial and colonized sort of discourse. Uh, what happens in between the, those spaces, and that sometimes the hybridity is 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 what emerges there. In this case, that's not really what's going on, at least that's not what I'm describing in this book. What this is about is basically an internal discussion within colonizing cultures. And um, so you've got the, the the English or British culture on the one hand, which is predominantly English. Then you've got the, the Dutch colonial culture in South Africa, which is more, more rural and so on. Um, and then you have other smaller groups. And in this case, the Scots is one of those smaller identities, in a sense, that had a a massive impact in the wider culture. Not only in South Africa, but across the the, the British Empire, really. But in in this case, they ended up being somewhat of a bridge uh, between the Scottish, uh, sorry, between the Dutch and and the English worlds. And Indeed, they through the, the process, which we'll talk about, how they became part of the Dutch Reformed Church, um, there is a, a, the, the, the Scottish identity becomes, uh, it, it stands out initially as it's, you know, as, a, as a, a distinct identity. But over time, it becomes hybridized within this Dutch culture in the sense that 
the original Scots uh, become more and more Dutch. Their descendants uh, become more and more Dutch, but they also retain this Scottish heritage and culture and links to other Scots in other parts of, of, of Africa and beyond. Um, so there, that, that's where this hybridity works for me. Um, it's within internally within colonial society, in a sense. Of course. And I want to mention to our listeners and future readers that this word will keep on coming up throughout the book. And it's an important concept to understand before diving into the rest of the chapter. So I just wanted to highlight that as well. And in the second chapter of your book, uh, Dr. Mueller, you go to great lengths um, to portray the readers with some some of the realities that the DRC uh, faced after um, Lord Charles Somerset, I think he was the British governor of the Cape uh, during this time. Um, uh, there's this um, taking place within the DRC was in borrowing your words, uh, Dr. Mueller is, quote, Scottish takeover of the DRC, end quote. As we see, you know, Scottish ministers taking over the dot. Dutch pulpits. And um, some of the minister you highlight were, I remember, Reverends John Taylor, William Robertson, and uh, George Tom. Uh, But it is in this chapter, I think, starting from this chapter, you you begin to slowly build up uh, um, the spotlight towards the Murray family. Um, Andrew Murray Sr., the first Scot to be you know, recruited to serve as a minister in the DRC, and his two sons, John and Andrew Murray Jr. And I know that the Murrays play an indispensable role in terms of their involvement with the DRC, and I can know why you go through such great lengths to delineate their lives here, starting from here, as they resemble this hybridity too that you talk about um it is also here that i want to mention that you have hinted in this chapter that the murrays themselves have also taken on this missionary identity and which i thought was very fascinating um so dr miller do you mind sharing more on these three important figures and what were so unique about them and their approach to the drc and what stands out to you in terms of their work especially with their ministry um in the war tracker uh settlements mm-hmm. hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. So the the, um, the Dutch Reformed Church, as I mentioned earlier, was established uh, through this uh, Dutch East India Company at the Cape. And originally, the point of, of the church uh, was from the, the, the point of view of the East India Company was not to, to be a missionary um, agent at all. Um, it was to serve the needs of the colonists and, and the company, really. Um, so that kind of became the ethos of the church in a, in a, in a wider sense over time. That is a very inward-looking church, um, and also within a society that was not producing a lot of um, scholarly work, or, or education was quite at a low level for the most part in that part of the world. Um, so there were not a lot of ministers who could serve within this church. The ones who were um, serving originally were all coming from the Netherlands and uh, where they were trained and they were Dutch pastors who happened to become ministers in the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. But uh, with the British takeover at the Cape and uh, increasingly under the rulership of Lord Charles, Charles Somerset, there was this policy of anglicization where um, the, the goal was really to to strengthen the Anglo component in the society, including in the colonial society. 
And um, one answer from their side was to recruit Scottish ministers to serve in the Dutch Reformed Church because uh, it was not seen as a as a as a theological threat. They were reformed as well as were the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, and so theologically that made sense. And they were also somewhat outside of, of the, the the dominant group within British society, the English group. So so they were not seen as so much of a threat from the side of the Dutch. So that was okay to have them um, within that church to serve as ministers. And um, the uh, so that's kind of the one side of the, of the story. The other is just that they, they were, uh, uh, there was a, a lack of ministers who could serve in the church. So many vacant pulpits, especially on the border regions, of what was then the, the Cape Colony, which was an expanding frontier, uh, but on the on the outer fringes in the rural areas, there were not any ministers who could serve congregations. So this is where most of the Scots who were then recruited were placed in that outer fringe. So with the abolition of of uh, or at least the the laws going into effect against slavery in the in the eighteen thirties, um, this. These uh, outerlying communities of Dutch uh, settlers or uh, farmers, really, who were slave owners for in many respects, wanted to get away from the empire. So their goal was to move outwards, northwards and eastwards, and uh, they became the trek boers that you mentioned earlier, sometimes also referred to as voortrekkers later on in Afrikaner literature. And... Um, and this is where some of the early tensions between the Scots ministers and their congregants uh, surface, because the Scots were uh, were definitely imperial agents. They saw themselves as that, and they were, for the most part, entirely um, pro-abolition. So they were not in favor of slavery, and they thought that these people who were moving away out of their congregations were essentially rebels, uh, you know, and, and basically disobedient to. God and country, if you want to put it like that. So that that was a major source of tension at, mm-hmm. at that early period. Well, thank you for that great answer. Um, and just uh, segueing into now the third chapter, which you've uh, titled Scottish Ministers, Evangelical Revival, and the Church-Based Apartheid. Um, here you deal with uh, various multiple issues, um, and we continue to see this influences of the Murray family, um, Andrew Sr., John and Andrew Jr., um, and other Scottish ministers within the DRC riding this, uh, you would say, global wave of evangelical uh, revival and the beginnings of the also Stellenbosch uh, Seminary. Um, there's a lot to cover, as I just mentioned in this chapter, but what I thought was crucial in this chapter was, and I think you emphasized this as well, was this controversy um, started surrounding the question of whether it was permissible or not for black converts to congregate in a separate building from the whites. Now, this very question was raised during the 1857 Synod um, and the motion 
was passed and as you have commented would have considerable repercussions um, um, this is very sensitive and the very important topic I think um, that you deal upon and, and we see this early beginnings of this issue but Dr. Miller could you say more on this uh, first controversial synod and why this question even came up um, the social milieu of, of, the, uh, of what was going on and the implications that the motion had brought and how it had become I think you put it this way quote interpreted as the beginning of structural apartheid in South Africa Yes. Yeah, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let's just return a little to that where I was talking about these people moving out from the, uh, the, the confines of the, of the empire away from the Cape Colony because they were objecting to the rules and regulations, especially to do with slavery. So what now occurred in, this, in the next phase of, of, the, of that history is that these people... Um, were for a time sort of excommunicated from the church, uh, from the Dutch Reformed Church, but the Scots who were placed on the border in the border regions saw this as still their people in a sense that they need to uh, they need to minister to them in some way. So some of them went on evangelistic trips to the north and the east. Um, the Andrew Murray, as you mentioned, is is one, uh, especially Andrew Murray Jr conducted many of these sort of evangelistic trips uh, to the northern parts to visit these communities, but also some of the others like William Robertson and John Taylor and so on. And they all had uh, interactions uh, with with, uh, their former congregants. And eventually a kind of new consensus was arrived at within the church that uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, that these people... um, you know, are part of the church. They could again receive the sacraments, and this especially happened when the British Empire also uh, threw out its its boundaries further to the north and the east. So, for example, there was the establishment of the Orange River sovereignty, which is today the Orange or the, not today is not well, it is still it's the Orange Free State. It's a sort of the central province in South Africa. Um, and so, as the as the empire expanded its borders, it reincorporated these uh, recalcitrant Boers again, and the church could again, you know, minister to them and uh, have ministers within their midst and so on. Uh, so much so that Andrew Murray Jr. eventually became the minister in the town of Bloemfontein, which is right in the middle of of what was then the Orange River sovereignty. Anyway, this imperial tussle um, between the empire and its subjects continued in the, all kinds of ways. But um, within the context of the Dutch Reformed Church, what happened was, uh, as you can see from the earlier history already, the Dutch congregants, the, the rural farmers or Boers, as they were called, that constituted most of the church, uh, were not uh, particularly interested in mission. They had a for them their Christianity was kind of an identity. It was their identity. They understood um, Christianity to mean white Protestant basically, and being a, a, a white settler in a in a in an African context, sort of immediately translated to being Christian and part of the Dutch Reformed Church. So it was a matter of you know your, your children were baptized there, marriages were conducted. Which is not to say that they weren't devout. Some of them were, you know, very devout in their own way. But it was very closely tied to the emerging identity of being 
a white Dutch related uh, settler in South Africa. So um, when the Scots, especially, and not not only the Scots, but other missionaries be, uh, became involved in in, in uh, evangelizing the indigenous population of Southern Africa, which is the majority population, black South Africans, and uh, uh, you know all all different of the all different uh, linguistic and ethnic groups in the areas, uh, when they became some of them became increasingly Christian or attracted to be to to the church. This became an issue for these uh, white settlers who understood Christian to mean white, basically, and, and not black. Right? Black was identified as heathen. And so for many of them, uh, the idea of congregating together and especially sharing the Lord's Supper together was completely anathema. They, they were uh, objecting against that on racist grounds, no doubt. You know, so this is some early forms of really harsh racism. Uh, but again, like we know, these people were slave over, uh, owners in a, just f- f- until very recently. So that's, that's where they were coming from. Um, and within the, the Scots uh, position then, especially the, 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 not only the Scots, but the missionary leg within the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, this became something to deal with increasingly. How do you now address this problem where your congregants do not want to, um, you know, they don't want to sit next or sit in the same church as 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 a, a black person. Um, they don't want to share the Lord's Supper, etc. So how do you deal with that? So the, one answer was, well maybe we could, instead of just splitting up the church, let's just construct separate buildings where, uh, you know, the black congregants could congregate in the one and the white in the other and so on. So that was kind of a pragmatic solution of sorts to this racist problem. And uh, and the issue of the 1857 Senate, which wasn't the first, by the way, there were several preceding Senates that also addressed this this topic in different ways, but that's where it was really kind of decided then um, that it's, although it is scripturally not correct for people to be segregated at at the worship service, this would be permissible in this instance if that's the only way to get people to accept being part of the same theoretical church. Uh, Yeah. So that, but but like you say, that's probably the beginning. What people often refer to this as the beginning of structural apartheid, because literally they legitimized these segregated settings yes. within a church setting. And I think I I still remember in this a chapter that uh, that itself is still controversial in in some sense. You know, some people argue in this sense. Some people argue that 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 is you know in the very beginnings. And um, it is uh, I think you mentioned how it is still talked about. But um, segueing into the following chapter, you pay careful attention now to this growing missionary interest uh, within the DRC, um, especially within with the establishment um, of the Minister's Missionary Union, the MMU, yes. and their work in Nyasa land, um, um, now known as Malawi. Um, and it is also here in this chapter where you cover the importance and the contributions of women uh, in this missionary impetus. Uh, the 
the active participation of American women that went to South Africa. And I think um, this is something that I do wanted to highlight because it is uh, one of the important topics within world Christianity as well. Um, you draw from the work of Dana Robert uh, from Boston University, and you emphasize that the DRC missionary enterprise would never have taken off were it not for the fact that it was to a large extent driven uh, by women's fundraising ability, uh, organizational skills, and willingness to go themselves as missionaries to these uh, remote places, uh, among other factors. And I was wondering, Dr. Miller, can you say more about uh, the role of women and their connection to the missionary activities uh, during this time? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's a very important issue you're bringing up there. Um, and the work of Dana Roberts was especially important. I, I think she she's the one who mentioned to me once uh, this very point you mentioned there about uh, the fact that the, the, the missionary movement within the Dutch Reformed Church was really driven by women. It's something that I hadn't thought about previously, but then uh, subsequently looked into and you know read her, her work on this and and others. And so there is a, indeed a strong case to be made once. Uh, in the later 19th century, once the foreign missionary movement of the Dutch Reformed Church took off, this was to a large extent um, the work of women. They were fundraisers for, for the most part, but also uh, providers of education, uh, very important educational institutions that were founded with the help of American um, sponsors and co-workers, people from the Mount Holyoke um, College and seminary, in, and then who came over in collaboration with Andrew Murray and and his family, um, and they started up these different schools. Most famous one being in Wellington, South Africa, but then a number of others where uh, training uh, was provided to young late young women um, and school going young daughters of, of, of colonists as well and, and other people in South Africa. Uh, and these were really important institutions um, in a time when it was not so common to be um, to have women education for women to that degree. So uh, it really made a big difference. And then, of course, in a time when there were not so many career opportunities for women in any case, the mission field was uh, one avenue where they could indeed excel, and they did in, in this case, um, as they did in many other places around the world during the same period. Um, so, yes, that, it's an important aspect, and I think it somewhat connects to the, you know, just the general trend of of the of this missionary um, connection, this attitude, missionary principle within the Dutch Reformed Church which was highly uh, pragmatic. So the, it, I don't think necessarily from the, the, the side of the people who were organizing the whole thing, they were not think, thinking in terms of, of gender equality or anything like that at the time. It was mainly, who can we send to do the work? And in this case, women was, was part of this, and they were the ones sending as, as well. Um, yeah, but 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 it's a it's a it's a complex story, and um, many people have written about this um, in much more detail. I've only touched on it a little in this in that chapter. <laughs> well, thank you so much for bringing that up, and I think um, you really highlight the importance of women, especially in in chapter four. 
Um, kind of segueing into um, looking into chapter five, I've noticed that um, this chapter covers the controversy that took place uh, during an important turning point in the history of South Africa and um, in which you treat, uh, in the specific timeline you treat in this book, this uh, South African war from 1899 to 1902 is unavoidable. Um, it is right in the middle of the time frame that you're treating. Um, Dr. Mueller, here you dedicate a significant portion of this chapter in delineating some of the contradictory views um, held by two important figures, uh, James Stewart, um, who I think you mentioned was uh, uh, well known because he's a, he was the principal of Lovedale College in the Eastern Cape, and also our very own Andrew Murray Jr., uh, who was an influential leader in the DRC. And their positions regarding this war, you know, becomes a big debate. And for our listeners that might be kind of unfamiliar to this war, um, I was wondering if you could just briefly explain more about what was going on during this time and also kind of what stood out um, in the way between Stuart and Murray's uh, understanding of the war and on the Boers themselves. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a that's a very important topic and a, a very big topic as well. Yes, um, of course. We can't really cover it in detail. But broadly speaking, what happened was the there were important minerals being discovered in different parts of South Africa during the preceding period. Especially gold was found. Uh, large quantities of gold was discovered in what is in the area that's today Johannesburg. Uh, at that time, in the middle of the South African Republic, which was a Boer-controlled republic um, that had declared themselves independent of the British Empire just before this. Their neighboring um, state was the Orange Free State, formerly the Orange River Sovereignty that I also referred to earlier on. Uh, At this time, this was also an independent Boer-controlled republic. So these two Boer republics were... um, not the same, but they were partners and in partnering against the empire, especially, uh, uh, which they saw as the aggression of imperial forces increasingly uh, upon their borders. And uh, the, the main factor that that drew uh, that drew out all the conflict was the fact that lots of mine workers were coming in from outside, so f- foreigners, essentially, from other parts of the British Empire, were moving in and working on these mines and, um, you know, essentially becoming quite a, a significant proportion of the of the, the white colonist population in those areas. And they were demanding franchise. They wanted to have the vote. So this this led to conflict between, uh, you know, the, the, the Boers who didn't want that, of course. So they wanted to, their own um, independence from the empire. And these people were you know, basically um, empire-supporting colonists. So that eventually, in different ways, led to outbreaks of violence and eventually a full-scale war, uh, known as the Second Anglo-Boer War in, in this case, or the South African War, as it's also known. Now, in the case of, of the Dutch Reformed Church within this whole conflict, and Andrew Murray at that time was a highly influential um, person within the Dutch Reformed Church. I should also just say that prior to going into this, actually, the fact that the Scots tended to occupy leadership positions right through the 19th century in the Dutch Reformed Church. And 
Andrew Murray, both his father, the original um, uh, Murray in South Africa, and his son Andrew were in leadership positions. There, uh, and Andrew's other brother John, his older brother, was became the uh, one of the first professors at the Stellenbosch Seminary. So these people were very highly influential in the church, and the church needed to follow what they were doing and saying. So Andrew Murray Jr. at this time had uh, already become quite hybridized, if you want to, again, bring up this word, within the Afrikaner community. Um, he's, uh, he, although he, his, his wife was uh, somebody, uh, was a, 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 the daughter of a, a British immigrant in, um, in Cape Town, uh, so, so very English in a sense, but but the wider family had steadily become more um, involved with the Afrikaner community. They were sympathizing with the Boers against the um, the empire in this war. They saw this as an un- unjust treatment, and the whole church uh, tended to see it that way. They saw it as a, you know just an injustice that was occurring. And that the threat of against the independence of the Boer Republic uh, was was the sticking point. So uh, the other side is James Stewart, you mentioned, who was um, the, a missionary at, at Lovedale, among other uh, other things, but also kind of the protege of David Livingston, who was a much better known uh, missionary in, in in southern and central Africa. So Livingston had, had his own interactions with the Boers, and none of them were good. He had very uh, negative understandings of the Boers, also because of their ongoing slavery techniques that they were uh, basically executing in different ways around the around the southern half of the continent, at least in southern Africa and even further north, uh, where they would essentially capture uh, children and, and and minors and so on and and. Um, uh, and you know, uh, have them work for them in, in in what could be described as slavery-like conditions. So David Livingston was uh, uh, at the, all different altercations with the, with different Boer uh, communities, and and same with uh, James Stewart. He came out of that uh, my understanding, um, so he also did not feel predisposed to helping the Boer or sympathizing with the Boer point of view in this war. He, he saw, saw it as, uh, you know, they wanted independence so that they could enslave, basically. So therefore, um, you know, it's better to have the empire uh, impose their, their laws on them and subjugate them. So there's a difference because not that Andrew Murray was in any way pro-slavery or anything like that, quite the contrary. Um, but... I think through this process of being part of this church, maybe seeing himself as a missionary to these very people that he uh, within his church, that's kind of the argument that I make in the book as it goes along. Um, but he had a, a much more sympathetic view of their plight. And there's also the case of his own son, for example, who um, ended up being a missionary but captured by the... The, the British forces during this war and ended up becoming a, a, a POW because he was sympathetic to the Boers in the region. So there were these types of things that, that played uh, an influence and many other things besides. But Of course. Yeah. I think... 
thank you for clarifying that. And I'm. Uh, this is going to be important because at the end of your book, uh, this, there's uh, this uh, again another different transition that takes place uh, in light of even though we see the Murrays uh, being very supportive of the Boers, but something else turns out towards the end. But we'll we'll revisit that question again. But thank you for clarifying um, this conflict between Stuart and Murray and about uh, this uh, South African war. Uh, you just mentioned, uh, Dr. Mueller, about uh, the prisoners of war. And this next question is kind of a continuation of, of the one that I just did. And I think it's important just to understand what was taking place as a result of, the, of this war. Um, in my own research um, outside of your book, I've I've read the casualty, the number of casualties, and it was immense. This was quite a big war, and especially um, there was a lot of prisoners that came out, the prisoners of war, POWs, in which we see many Boers being sent overseas um, to these islands of exiles, uh, camps in Ceylon, India, St. Helena. Um, and we read in reading the later half of chapter five and then the beginning of chapter six, we see how various organizations and uh, ministers connected to the Scots Afrikaners evangelized to the POWs. And one organization that is noteworthy I wanted to mention here, and you also emphasize, is the Christian Endeavor Society. Um, Dr. Mueller, could you tell us a bit more about what was taking place amongst the POWs and on the Christian Endeavor Society? Specifically, um, you highlight two uh, figures, George Murray and A.F. Lowe. So would you like to touch upon them as well? Yes. Yes, thank you. They, they are uh, the Christian Endeavor Society is a very important uh, link in, in many ways between uh, what happened in South Africa within the Dutch Reformed Church and the wider uh, sort of Atlantic world um, of evangelic Protestant evangelicalism. So, uh, in the late nineteenth century, uh, for different reasons, um, the even the the this Endeavour Society ended up in South Africa. And again, Andrew Murray Jr. was the link there. He is the one who essentially brought over um, through connections, maybe through his, um, the connections with the Huguenot Seminary and the Americans that he already knew, um, brought over or at least established a branch of the Christian Endeavour Society in the Cape area. And then from there on, it became quite a, an important movement within the Dutch Reformed Church, but also outside of it. So it was a para-church para kind of organization, emphasizing Christianity of the heart, you know, um, a, a very much a, a holiness type of movement within evangelicalism and emphasizing mission work and charity and, and um, devotion, Bible study, these types of things. So uh, what happened was in during the this the, these war uh, this war period and the, these camps that you mentioned outside of uh, South Africa really in the wider empire especially um, the Endeavour Society started to play a, an important role on many of these camps because some of the ministers who were sent by the Dutch Reformed Church or who had volunteered of their own accord to go um, as kind of chaplains ended up being also heavily involved in the Christian Endeavour Society. So, for example, you mentioned George Murray, who was on Salon. That's a younger brother of Andrew Murray, of course. So there's the family uh, connection there. A.F. Lowe was a chaplain on uh, the camps in St. Helena, was, uh, the, um, was also 
part of this Murray family. His mother was a Murray, and um, his mother was that you you know a sister of Andrew Murray as well. So uh, he he did a similar thing there in 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 the camps there, and this happened elsewhere as well. Uh, so what what they ended up doing was to really uh, not only strengthen the kind of spiritual uh, life of the POWs, but also made them interested uh, in the wider world of evangelicalism, of Protestant missions, and essentially recruiting many of them to become missionaries or to at least consider the missionary vocation as something that they would be interested in once the war concluded. So when the war had concluded, Again, this very same AF flow went to, um, and established a, a training institute for missionaries in in the in the Western Cape, and so many of the POWs ended up there as his student students within this college, and eventually went as missionaries elsewhere to Nyasaland and and other places to the north of South Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank so, you, thank you for that answer. And I remember how you mentioned there was this revival even amongst the POWs. Yes, it is a very strong period of revivalism. Uh, I think we earlier talked about the, the earlier nineteenth-century revivals that that took place. So we didn't, I didn't emphasize that much in our discussion so far. But this was a period of revivalism, and and this was again became another wave of of revivalism on these camps. Lots of, of people, um, prisoners, essentially uh, expressing mm-hmm. conversion experiences. Yes. Um, thank you for that answer. And as we head towards the end of your book, I do want to pause and say a word of appreciation to you, Dr. Miller. Your book really has opened my eyes in better understanding this very unique and very, in a way, controversial, controversy-filled history of South Africa, um, especially as you eloquently retrace the history of the Scots Afrikaners by highlighting issues of hybridity and religiosity. Um, Even through the layers of complexity, the clarity uh, in your explanations you provide in each chapter has been very helpful. So thank you. I just wanted to say thank you. And um, I know our conversation today only touches about, I think, just the tip of the iceberg. Um, It doesn't do any justice to the depth uh, that the book brings. So I would like to encourage our listeners to also take a moment to uh, read this book um, in the future as well. Now, with the growing Afrikaner nationalism we see um, in towards the early and towards to the mid 20th century, we encounter this uh, decline in the legacy of the Scottish ministers. And this is not something out of the blue. Um, Your work, your previous chapters have hinted at the kind of resistance and the suspicions that have been kind of brewing within the Afrikaner people, uh, even in the DRC. Um, This unpopularity, I think, reaches new heights, um, especially as you treat rather closely the publicized disagreement between Andrew Murray and another new figure that you touch upon is the DF Milan in Chapter 7. And I was wondering if you could explain uh, this tension between Milan and Murray, and as they talk quite intensely on issues such as church and nation, um, what were some of the criticism and issues that Milan raised, and you know, uh, what was uh, Murray's response to that? Yeah, no, thank you. That, mm-hmm. that is an important moment in the mm-hmm. in the book. The um, you know the uh, 
this whole history, as you mentioned, it, it's, been, it's been happening for some time by this at this point already. Um, there's never been complete um, a complete sense of ease, I think, within the Dutch Reformed Church with respect to the Scots ministers and their influence within that church. Uh, even though they were leaders uh, and uh, you know moderators of the church, uh, etc., for a long period of time, there's always been the suspicion, and this increased when, uh, as you mentioned, Afrikaner nationalism became a strong factor, and this this started to be, become a really strong factor towards the end of the 19th century. Then the Anglo-Boer War happened, which kind of strengthened the. Um, this uh, nationalism even more, even though the Boers lost that war if effectively. Uh, it's been said that they won the peace because after the war uh, concluded, the British Empire was quite lenient in terms of the, um, the um, uh, level of independence that they granted to the, the defeated party, in this case, the, the Boers, the Boer republics. So those republics no longer existed. They were now incorporated within the Union of South Africa, which is pretty much what South Africa is today, that, 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 that geographical area. But um, the, the defeated party were given quite a lot of uh, leeway and uh, decision-making power and so on. And uh, um, f- not too long after this, the um, Afrikaner nationalism became a, a very strong factor, driving... A, a, you know, a rebirth of uh, older visions of the fur trackers, you know, those track birds that we talked about and their um, plight. And it they were kind of, uh, they became kind of narrative of their victimization. They were described as people who were victimized by uh, the British Empire, of course, but who also suffered at the hands of of the indigenous population, the black people, especially the Zulu, uh, you know, there were some some violent interactions between these different groups. And um, in any, any case, this is a, a discourse of otherness that, that increasingly emerged. And Afrikaner identity, uh, which is similar to Boer identity, it's a kind of a later wave in this in this whole narrative. Um, was was now on the rise in contradistinction to all other identities and ethnicities, but especially against British, initially the British, the white, the white British identity, but then furthermore much stronger against the black uh, identities um, within South Africa. And um, yeah, so D.F. Malan, who you mentioned as a new figure in this book, he doesn't play a, a big role necessarily in the entire drama, but he's a very important figure within South African history because he he would become eventually the first prime minister who would uh, initiate a, an apartheid, explicitly apartheid-driven agenda when he became prime minister of the country in 1948 within the, the National Party, um, uh, which was the ruling party then that he um, was a leader of. So um, he was, in a former part of his life, a minister within the Dutch Reformed Church. And in fact, he served at the town where Andrew Murray Sr. was a minister very early on, and that's Graf Reinet in the, you know, a very important congregation within the Dutch Reformed Church. 
So Malan was was a minister there, but then he resigned from his post in order to to take up the editorship of a newspaper, Afrikaans language newspaper. And after that, he became a politician. So what led, led to this interaction, which I describe in the book, is when Malan gave a justification uh, for why he left the church in order to pursue a career in politics. And he, he justified it as basically an extension of his calling. So he, it's not that he was uh, rejecting his vocation, you know, leaving behind the ministry. He was uh, basically taking it into a wider arena. And the way he argued it was that, you know, the the nation was essentially uh, the um, the area in which he would he would fulfill his ministry. And so this led to a kind of uh, a, a, a way of of describing the nation as a as a God instituted entity, which I don't think was uncommon at the time. Nationalists all in different places were describing the nation as a kind of organic entity, uh, some sometimes God ordained, etc. So this was the kind of line that he was taking, and he was saying that um, you know that that's what he would do. Andrew Murray Jr., on the other hand, who by this time was a, quite an old man already, close to retirement, um, was, um, well, close to the end of his life, in fact. It's not that he really retired ever, but uh, he uh, took a completely different view and he argued uh, against this publicized um, letter by Milan to say that, you know, uh, the church is... The church is the Christian is where the Christian identity should find its fulfillment, and um, not this wider nation. Uh, and basically, the church is above nations. You know, so he's, he he gave a much more ecumenical interpretation of what it meant to be church, and but also a somewhat anti-nationalistic um, perspective, um, which was quite common within the the Murray tradition and the, that leg of evangelicalism that they occupied. And so that, that, that's basically the tension that you see there between yeah. the two. And we see, if I'm not mistaken, we see a lot of um, attacks uh, towards the Miri or Miri name and, and the families and also uh, this, um, yeah, this tension arising and um, a lot of criticism towards, as I mentioned, this, this turnaround uh, towards, even though they might have been seen as a supporters of the Boers, but at the end, we see a difference, uh, kind of a turnaround in their legacy. And um, I, I know uh, we just touch upon this uh, briefly, but um, you go beyond um, just these issues. You talk about ecumenism, ecumenical work uh, throughout this chapter, uh, throughout your book as well. And um, again, uh, even though this uh, interview does not do justice, there's uh, so much deeper and more content that I think our um, listeners and our readers uh, will find interesting as well. So thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Miller and um, one thing I particularly enjoyed about the concluding chapter of your book is how you reassess some of the key aspects uh, you have covered throughout your book, um, such as this question regarding again uh, hybridity, identity um, that serves as your framework. But here I would like to pose a question to you: um, What is kind of like the message you'd like to invite the readers to think about, uh, particularly? particularly as you have enabled the readers to imagine this new nomenclature, uh, Scots Afrikaners, uh, in your book? 
Yeah, you know, for me there are there there are a couple of of, of central themes that that I think is something that we all could reflect on some more. The one is the connection between between Christianity and nationalism, um, which is a, a particular issue within the Afrikaner community was at least at that time. But as, I think we all know that even in our own time, it's, it continues to be a, an issue, the issue of nationalism and or Christian nationalism, uh, you know, to put it that way. So it resurfaces in different ways, uh, in, in different places. That doesn't mean it's the same every time or, you know, the similar, similar factors playing a role. But uh, through this book, I try to illustrate, you know, how, well, on the one hand, what, what happens within a context that's, uh, um, that looks like that, uh, imbued with Christian nationalism. And I also pose this opposing sort of view that's much more, as you say, ecumenical, um, that's a missionary-oriented uh, perspective. Um, speaking of missionary-oriented perspectives, I should also say that the other side, uh, like, for example, the one uh, that, that Malan was uh, uh, be, being, um, you know, a proponent of, was also a, a missionary identity. But in in that sense, mission was also always tied to preserving the identity of the self. In this case, Afrikaner people. Um, so they would do mission as a way to essentially strengthen Afrikaner. Um, identity. It's a segregated mission. So you do mission in a in a different context. It, it doesn't it doesn't really impinge on your own identity. But within the hybrid kind of concept, which I think uh, is more what what you see within the Scots Afrikaners and their work, uh, it's very difficult to keep these boundaries. Even in places where they try to to do that. Like I, I mentioned in some places, uh, you know, they think it's a good strategy to to um, erect a kind of segregation as a pragmatic um, uh, measure, but then th- that, that becomes they become entangled in that whole thing in, in different ways, and it doesn't work in any case. Later on, they are the ones, uh, this is something that you, you, you touched on, but we didn't really talk about in the Asaland, in that ecumenical setting with other Scots, where they may, uh, basically are the ones who are accommodated by other Scottish missionaries in terms of their own racism uh, in the in the in the ecumenical senate w- between the different uh, groups within the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian. Um, but you know, so in terms of of, of the message, I, I think we have to pay close attention to how our identities become involved in discourses that we don't intend it to be involved in. We don't think it is really what it is all about. Uh, but but Christian discourses often become entangled with uh, with for example nationalism, and it leads to problems. Um, so in that sense, hybridity, even though it's 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 a dirty word in some people's view, is actually a better option. Um, not not problem free, but it it um, it means um, yeah, it, it it shows a certain vulnerability, I think, and that's what I the point I make as well. Um, if it's an intentional thing, and so uh, to me, that's better than than you know exclusivism. Okay. 
<laughs> well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much um, for this time you you provided for me in this interview to discuss your book. And um, I especially like your answer at the end. It makes your book really makes us to think out of the box, you know, out of the usual way um, to approach different matters, um, even in our own contexts as well. So thank you. And um, before we conclude today's interview, there's one final question that I would like to ask my guests. And that is, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects? and what you hope to work on as well. Sure. Yeah, no, so, uh, you know, at the moment, I'm working on a couple of just spin-off projects to do with this work that I've done and some of my previous work as well. You know, people have asked me to contribute chapters to a number of different things, and so that's really occupying my time at present. But I hope to, uh, you know, take this kind of research a step further and especially look at a different region of Africa, um, not featuring here, but also where the Dutch Reformed Church was involved. And this is what is today central Nigeria. So there's a mission from the same Dutch Reformed Church in the early 20th century. Uh, some of the, at least one of the characters in this book uh, was uh, involved in this. And um, so mission to central Nigeria, which then became eventually taken over by the mission missionary work of the Christian Reform Church in North America. So there's a kind of intertwined history as well, not in this case, not between um, Scots and Afrikaners, but be- between Scots and Nigerians and, and the North Americans from the uh, Christian Reform Church. So I'm interested in, in that history and, uh, you know, to see what, what exactly happened there and how did, how did, uh, what, what were the kind of uh, interactions exactly between the Afrikaners who were there for missions, uh, for me, as missionaries for a period. They left, I think, under the duress because of apartheid, essentially. Then the, the American missionaries took over but I'm interested to see what happened in this changeover, especially between the different groups and um, to see uh, how, how these different components affected the wider history of, of Christianity in that area. Mm. Wow, Dr. Mueller, those sound like great projects. And I look forward to reading more of your works. And once again, thank you so much uh, today for being on today's podcast. And thank you. Yeah, and thank you. Uh, and thank you, everyone, so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Retief Mueller's uh, new book, The Scots Afrikaners, Identity, Politics, and Intertwined Religious Cultures in Southern and Central Africa, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. This is your host, Byung Ho Choi, and please stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.